Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? How's the, how's the weekend going? Pretty well? Good, good. I'm glad you're here. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Psalm 102, uh, Old Testament Psalm 102. And if you're a guest, uh, just so you know, one of, the, one of the reasons we're studying the Psalms is because these ancient songs, and that's really what they are, these ancient songs can play a significant role in our spiritual growth and development. Uh, in his book, Case for the Psalms, Christian author, theologian N.T. Wright states it this way, sing these songs and they will renew you from head to toe, from heart to mind. Pray these poems and they'll sustain you on the long, hard, but exhilarating road of Christian discipleship. And I believe that's true. But the thing is, we need to hear them and we need to understand them correctly. Now, in saying that, uh, I have to confess that up until recently, uh, whenever I thought about the Psalms, I would think to myself, yeah, yeah, I know, happy is the man, blah, 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 the Lord is my shepherd, yada, 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 sing to the Lord a new song, dun, 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 you know what I mean? It's kind of embarrassing to admit, but uh, it's true, I had this sort of been there, done that attitude. But over the last couple months, in preparing for this series, you know, I really, I really rediscovered this, the, the, the beauty and the richness of these songs and how if, if given the chance, their authors have so much to tell us and so much to teach us. And, and Psalm 102 is a prime example of that. I, you know, I couldn't even remember the last time I, I looked at this song, but when I came across and I started reading, uh, I was overcome with what, what these ancient lyrics were telling me. And so I want to share some thoughts about them uh, with you. Uh, in the next few minutes. It's a fairly long song, so let me just read a few of the key verses. It begins this way. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I am in distress. Turn your ear to me when I call. Answer me quickly. For my days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. My heart is blighted and withered like grass. I forget to eat my food. In distress I groan aloud and am reduced to skin and bones. I'm like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. I lie awake and become like a bird alone on the roof. But you, you, Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. Let this be written for a future generation that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. Now, one of the, um, <clears throat> one of the consistent underlying themes uh, in the Psalms of Scripture has to do with the fact that a lot, a lot of problems in life, and I think some might even argue uh, all of our problems, to, to a certain extent, stem from either not knowing God or forgetting who he is at any given moment. And the psalmist here in this case is reminding us of something very important about God. And, and I mean, if this song is known for anything, it's known for these lyrics. God, your years go on through all generations. You remain the same, and your years will never end. In academic circles, theologians refer to this as God's attribute of immutability, which is just a fancy way of saying uh, he is eternally unchanging. That's what the word immutable means, unchanging. And I want to explore that idea with you a little bit, but before we get to that statement about who God is, we probably first need to discuss what the author says about us. 
because uh, through a very lyrical description of his own experience, the writer starts off the song by reminding us who we are as human beings. And, you know, to be honest about it, the opening verses of the song are not particularly easy to read in that they're, they're kind of painful to hear because this, here we have this person who's just, who's just crying out to God, just crying out to God saying, hear my prayer, O Lord. And uh, remember, when, whenever you see the word Lord in capital letters uh, in the Old Testament, it, 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 it's the Hebrew term, that the Hebrew term is being translated is Yahweh, you know, the I am who I am, creator of all things. And so the person saying, hear my prayer, O Lord, creator of all things, I am in distress. In fact, we noted last week how uh, many psalms have subtitles. Not all of them, but many of them do. Uh, subtitles that provide information about the author, the type of psalm, the experience behind it. And this is one of those. The subtitle of this song is A Prayer of an Afflicted Person Who Has Grown Weak and Pours Out a Lament Before the Lord. Now, what were the circumstances that led up to this person's state of desperation? We can't be sure. We're not told. However, what we do know is in what manner they were suffering. For example, in the title, the Hebrew term we translate afflicted uh, carries the idea of poverty, of oppression, marginalization. And, and so, to some degree, this person is suffering economic hardship. Then with such statements as, my bones burn like glowing embers, in my distress I groan aloud and am reduced to skin and bones, those statements indicate there's some kind of physical malady going on. The person's sick. As a result, they're struggling emotionally. The writer admits, my heart is blighted, withered like grass, i.e., I'm just feeling really hopeless and broken. You know, I forget to eat my food. He says, I'm like a desert owl alone among the ruins. I lie awake. I've become like a bird alone on a roof. People taunt me. They rail against me, etc., etc., etc. You getting the picture here? Hopelessness, loss of appetite, uh, sleeplessness, loneliness, a sense of isolation. This person is depressed. I mean, they are struggling emotionally. And there's a spiritual struggle going on as well. Because the writer prays, Lord, let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me. You've taken me up. You've thrown me aside. Uh, in short, they're, they're worried that God really isn't listening. And they're wondering, maybe, maybe he's angry at me. Or they're feeling as if he has somehow abandoned them. So suffice it to say, the person is in a bad way, economically, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And uh, as is often the case in the midst of suffering, they have this sort of, this existential moment, this sort of aha moment uh, where the reality, not, not only of their personal situation, but the reality of the human condition uh, becomes painfully clear. The author, author summarizes it this way. My days vanish like smoke. My days are like evening, the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. All through Scripture, these three similes, smoke, shadows, and grass, are used over and over and over again to communicate the finiteness of man. How we are, we are temporal beings whose lives are, are constantly changing and, and, and fading quickly away. The famous hymn writer Isaac Watts sang, um, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream, dies at the opening day. Or, as contemporary recording artist John Mayer puts it, life's like an out-of-control locomotive. He sings, stop this train, I want to get off and go home again. 
I can't take the speed it's moving in. I know I can't, because now I see I'll never stop this train. And he's right. But here's the deal. Psalm writers, hymn writers, song writers aren't the only people who have these aha moments about how fast life is passing by. We all have them. We all have them at some point or another. I mean, just think of the summer. Here we are in the summer. Think of the summer. When you're a kid, the summer seemed to last forever, right? Then you become a, a, a young adult and you say, man, summer went by fast. And you get to my age, you say, do we even have a summer? You know, <laughs> things just speed up. You know, they just speed up. And there are these instances when we recognize the passing of time. However, more often than not, uh, it's not summer that brings about moments of finite realization. It's suffering. It's suffering that comes in some form or another. But as it was with the author of our psalm, the sense of being finite, the sense of being temporal, uh, the sense that everything is changing and slipping quickly away from us, understand, suffering doesn't cause that condition. It only reveals it. Because it is, in fact, our reality. I mean, there is nothing in our world that is truly permanent. There's, uh, there's no universal permanence. The, uh, the second law of thermodynamics says what? It says that everything is in a constant state of entropy. Uh, it's running down, it's falling apart, it's, it's moving toward chaos and disorder and ultimate, ultimately passing away. And that's, that's what a secular uh, philosopher Bertrand Russell was getting at when he said everything is destined to extinction and the vast death of the solar system. And in a way, the psalmist is agreeing with that, affirming that. In verse 25, the psalmist says, the foundations of the earth and the heavens will perish. They'll wear out like a garment. Like old clothing, they'll be discarded. And therefore, there's no, there's no physical permanence. And just think in terms of our, our, our bodies. You know, as wonderful and complex and amazing as they are, they wear out, they wear down, they run out. Eventually, they cease to function. And therefore, there's no, there's no relational permanence. And if you see a happy, healthy family sitting together around a dinner table, that is a beautiful thing. It's especially beautiful if you're part of it. But ultimately, everyone around that table will lose everybody else. Why? Because time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. Everything is changing. Everything's fading away. Our lives are like vanishing smoke, like the evening shadow. We wither away like grass. And that's what the psalmist comes to realize, and that's what, he's, what, that's what he's telling us. And again, as with him, every now and then, something distressful, some, you know, some affliction, some sickness, some, some suffering uh, touches our lives and, and, and reveals our temporal, frail, finite condition. Now, fortunately, the song doesn't end on that note. About halfway through the song, there's a shift where the writer, after telling us who we are, begins to reveal to us what we need. And granted, the first 11 verses are, are pretty, pretty rough, grimly pessimistic. However, suddenly the tone of things starts to change. And in verse 12, this, this, this air of confidence, this, um, this air of assurance and hope begins to build. Why? What happens? What happens is the writer looks up and takes his focus off of himself and puts it on God. He places his finite humanness in juxtaposition to God's immutability, his unchangingness, right? 
That's what he does. He says, he says, I'm like a shadow. I wither like grass. But you, O Lord, creator of all things, you, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You remain the same, and your years will never end. Here's my Reiki summary. As finite human beings whose lives are changing and fading away, what, what we need first and foremost to know is that there is an eternal, unchanging God. He exists. And his, his, his nature doesn't change. His truth doesn't change. His, uh, neither does his character, his attributes. None of it. You know, our character changes um, under new influences. You know, we, we change our minds in light of new information. And when something changes, it's, made, it's either made better or made worse or just made different. But there's no information or influences that come to God he doesn't already have. He is perfect in knowledge. He is perfect in wisdom. He cannot improve. He cannot decline. Nothing is old or new to God because he is eternal. And look, I, I, look, I, realize, I realize this is a pretty challenging concept for us to grasp. It's hard for me. It's hard for us because we're imperfect, finite beings who exist in and are limited by time. But that's not true of God. The psalmist says, my God, in the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens, i.e. the universe had a beginning. Beginning, the word beginning indicates duration of time. But in the beginning, in the beginning of duration, at the beginning of time, at the point of creation, God was already there. Because he, he is eternal. He exists before, above, and outside of time, as we know it and as we experience it. A couple weeks ago, my wife Margie and I went uh, hiking in, uh, in, in Kentucky. Uh, I don't like going in the woods very much. Um, I'm not a campy guy. The, the, um, the phrase, uh, unhappy camper, that originated with me, I'm pretty sure. Um, I always, I like to hike. I just, I just want to come out of the woods when we're done. You know, I always say to my wife, if God wanted me to sleep in the woods on the, on the ground, he'd give me a tail. So... Anyway, uh, I could go on about the whole camping situation, my neurosis, but um, we went hiking uh, in Kentucky, and uh, we, we hiked up on top of these mountains. Uh, so they were wicked high, no railings, everything, and they were up on, some of them were just these big, giant, boulding, boulder outcroppings, you know, we're up really high, and you can look down in these beautiful valleys, and um, you can see all, the, all that's happening down there, you can see the river that's down there, and, and how it twists and turns, and, 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 and goes up and down, and has rapids, you can see all it, from our vantage point, we could see it all, and we could see, you know, we could see a boat over here, you know, the, a little waterfall, or you could see a boat around the corner over here, uh, from our point, we could see, see all the boats, but they couldn't necessarily see each other. Well, imagine the river is time, and you're on a boat on that river, which means the boats upstream behind you that you can't see are in the past. The boats downstream in front of you, around the corner, you, you can't see. They're in the future. You can't see them. They can't see you. But imagine every boat has a clear sight line to the top of the mountain. And whoever's up on top of that mountain, from that vantage where you can see you and see every other boat, although you can't see each other. Well, in a sense, that's how God relates to time. He, he looks down from on high, from his vantage point, he looks down on time, the ever-rolling stream, 
and he sees it all. It's all present to him because he exists outside of and above time. He knows no duration, which means as time passes for me, as it passes for you, things that happen in your past, things that happen today, whatever happens in your future, from God's vantage point, he sees it all at once. He sees it all. It's all present to him. There's nothing new. There's nothing old. Now, some of you may say, well, big deal. You know, big whoop. What's, what's it? So what? That doesn't mean anything. But you're wrong. It means, it means everything. So often I talk to people who will say, you know, Ray, I, you know, I believe in God, and uh, I committed to him. I put my faith in him years ago, but, but recently I did something uh, that, was just, that was just really wrong. I, I don't know why I did it. I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyway. It was messed up. I'm sorry that I did it. I'm embarrassed that I did it. Uh, and I'm just, I'm just not sure how God can forgive me and, and how he can love me anymore. And I get what they're saying, and I certainly appreciate the sentiment, but at that very moment, <clears throat> that person is failing to understand God's eternal unchangingness. What do I mean? Look, if you came to me and you said that, you said, Ray, you know, I don't, I don't know how God can forgive me or love me because of what I did. Here's what I would tell you. I would tell you that when God forgives and he places his love on you, he forgives and loves all of you. Not just your soul, not just your body, not just your mind, but all of you. All of your history, your yesterdays, your today, your tomorrows, they're all present to him. He sees it all, all at once. He sees all of you. He knows all of you. No one else who exists in time can see and know you like that, but God does. And therefore, his love and forgiveness for you is ever-present. Ever-present. Do you, do, you do you see what I'm getting at? I mean, how comforting is that? I find it comforting. In fact, this brings, up, <clears throat> brings us to the second thing the writer in Psalm 102 wants us to know. Because he starts off praying, right? He starts off with his prayer. He says, you know, hear my prayer, O Lord. So he knows God exists, and he knows this God is immutable. He's unchanging. But this guy is struggling. He's poor, he's, he's sick, he's hurting, he's discouraged. You know, he's lonely. His life is, is passing by. It's quickly fading. He realizes it. And therefore, it's not enough for him to, to know and believe there is an unchanging eternal God. He needed to know and be reminded and remind himself, we need to know and be reminded and remind ourselves that this eternal immutable God loves us immutably. He's not just unchanging in general, but he's un unchangeably committed to his people, to us in love. And therefore, we can trust him, we can have hope in him no matter what, no matter where life takes us. See, in the second half of the song, the writer affirms a number, number of things about God. We don't have time to get into all of them, but uh, for example, he, he, um, he affirms how God as creator rules forever and how he shows compassion and how he responds to the destitute and hears the groans of prisoners and releases those condemned to death. And then the author says, <clears throat> excuse me, my God, in the beginning you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You'll change them and they will be discarded. Now think about that for a second. 
astronomers tell us the Big Bang happened 13.7 billion years ago, give or take, which means the planets and the stars are nothing compared to God because he's eternal. Those things, they're going to perish. They're going to wear out. And like an old T-shirt, be discarded. Well, if all of those things of creation, planets, earth, sun, moon, and stars, if all of those things that have been around for billions of years will perish and be discarded, why would anything less happen to us? Why wouldn't the same be for us? You know, imperfect, frail, temporal human beings who are here one second, gone the next. The only answer, as I see it, the only answer is love. Divine love. Love that is eternal. Love that is immutable. Now, why do I say that? I say that because of how the song ends. With this, with his last line, the writer declares, the children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. And the Hebrew term we translate presence there literally means face. It's sort of saying, we'll live up in your face, you know, in your, meaning presence. It implies not just proximity, but presence. And then the Hebrew term for established means permanent. Permanent. So what's the psalmist saying? He's poetically making the point that God is not permanently committed to the mountains or to the earth, to the planets, moon, sun, stars, because he can't have a relationship with those things. He can't have a relationship with inanimate objects. But he, but he is permanently committed to his servants, to his people, because he can have a loving relationship with them, and they can love him in return. And when that is, relationship is established, and God puts his everlasting love on them, they last forever. Stars don't last forever. The planets don't last forever. But if God's everlasting love is on you, you are everlasting, see? But how do we know that for sure? How can we know that for sure? How, how do we know that this immutable God can and will love us immutably? And the psalm gives us a hint. We know it because of Jesus. And you may say, Jesus? Jesus again? Why are you bringing up Jesus? We're in Psalm 102, dude. Right? I bring him up because in the New Testament book of Hebrews, the writer quotes this psalm and applies it to Jesus, affirming his divine nature by equating him with the Lord. Yahweh, the I am who I am, the I will be who I will be, creator, the eternal, immutable God. And in stressing the, the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus as revealer and medi uh, mediator of divine love and grace, he says of Jesus, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and, and, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all wear out like a garment, but you remain the same and your years will never end. And with that quote, the writer directly links Jesus back to Psalm 102. Do you understand what that means? It means that everything that's true of God in this song is true of Jesus, deity in the flesh, deity incarnate. In fact, just this week it struck me, struck me how um, the psalmist writes these words, says, let this be written for a future generation that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. And he says this, the Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high from heaven. He viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. You remember one of the first things that Jesus said when he began his ministry? 
He said, I've, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners and set the captives free. Very similar language. See, as we, as we saw a couple weeks ago in Psalm 1, as we saw last Sunday in Psalm 34, if you look carefully, between the poetic lines of this beautiful song, we see Jesus. The psalm is directly linked to him. So let's think of, let's think of him in terms of what's said here. In Jesus, the immutable became mutable. The immortal, the immortal creator became mortal. The eternal Lord became temporal. The, Jesus became weak so we would be strong. He was afflicted so we could be healed. He became a prisoner so we could go free. He gave up, gave up his glory so that we might one day share in his glory. He gave up his life so we might have life everlasting. In short, the immutable God loves us immutably, and Jesus demonstrates it. Jesus proves it. And again, you know, when we say God is immutable, it means that his character is unchanging, right? His, his character is unchanging. For example, he is unchangingly loving. He is unchanging, unchangingly just. Although you see how that, our sin creates a problem with that because of our willful rebellion toward God. God could be unchangeably just and rightly punish us, but then his love seems diminished. Or God could be unchangeably loving and overlook our sins, but then he wouldn't be unchangeably just. How can he be both at the same time? How can he be both immutably loving and immutably just? Through Jesus. Through Jesus. For God so loved the world, he gave Jesus, whose, whose sacrifice for sin ultimately served justice. And whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This way, you see, God remains immutably loving and immutably just at the same time. This way, he can look from his vantage point onto the earth, and he can say to you and me, I love you. I, I, I love you. I know your sin. I, I know your rebellion. I know all of it. I know your entire journey. I know your entire life journey, the twists, the turns, the ups, the downs. From my vantage point, I see it all. And I, I realize you've been unfaithful. I realize you've messed up. I realize you'll mess up again. But I love you. And so I came to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And Jesus, I bear the burden of your sin. By grace, I will forgive you. Trust me. Have faith in me. For I, the immutable God, will forever love you immutably. It's amazing to me how <clears throat> this ancient song, after centuries upon centuries upon centuries, still, is still relevant, it still resonates with us in deep and profound ways. Because the author, with such raw yet beautiful language and poetic imagery, communicates feelings and experiences we all have as, as human beings. How in moments of affliction and, and distress and heartbreak and loneliness and suffering, our, our, our temporal finite condition, which we tend to ignore, we tend to ignore it and, and live in denial. But when things go bad, when there's brokenness and there's, there's loss and there's suffering, our temporal finite condition becomes a reality to us. We're faced with the reality. And with that reality comes a choice that has to be made. To curl up in our pain and, and confusion, wasting away in self-pity as time, like an ever-flowing stream, carries us away. Or do we look up with faith and hope to the creator who sits enthroned forever, whose renown endures through all generations, 
to the God who shows compassion and responds to the prayer of the destitute, to the divine Savior who sets free those held captive, to the one true Lord who remains the same and whose years will never end. Understand, by grace through Jesus, the immutable God offers us, offers to love us immutably forever. Will you accept that love? Will you accept him? That is the question. Let's pray. Our Father, um, I think we would all admit that we tend to walk through our days um, ignoring, perhaps even denying, our finiteness. I know as when we're young, we live, we live as if we'll live forever. We're, you know, nothing can hurt us. But then as the years, as the years pass, we recognize that we are we are finite beings, and uh, life is like vanishing smoke. It is like evening shadows. It is like the withering grass. And time, like an ever-flowing stream, keeps running. And so we, we need to choose how we're going to react to that reality. When in those times of affliction, in times of distress, in those times of suffering, will we just curl up? Or we will look to you, our God. I pray it would be the, the other. And I pray, actually, we wouldn't wait for the suffering to happen, that we would make the decision now in, in times of clarity. Because sometimes in the midst of suffering, it's hard to think clearly. But we would trust you, the God who loves us immutably and who has proven it in Jesus. And so over the next couple of minutes, Lord, as we just reflect on that reality, may we offer you thanks for your grace and forgiveness. Even though you've seen all of our lives, all of our mess, all of our mistakes, the good, the bad, the all of it, you love us anyway and you offer forgiveness to anyone who will accept it. So next couple moments, Lord, would your spirit just reveal how true that is to each of us? May we be comforted by that. And may the currents of time ultimately bring us to you, our God. We love you this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it, it amazes me how these ancient songs have so much to teach us. Uh, I was talking to someone this week. They said, so what are you teaching on this week? I said, uh, the immutability of God, and they just kind of look, oh, that sounds good. <laughs> but, you, you know, theology means something. You know, the Psalms aren't, aren't given to us just for beautiful poetry, which they are, or for some academic exercise to rip them apart and examine every word and every, every you know, every nuance. They're given, they're given to us to, to teach us, to learn from someone else's experience, to gain wisdom. Uh, from those who've gone before us. And uh, I, I, f I find them, I'm finding them life-giving for me. And uh, hopefully you are as well. You know, I quote, often I'll quote N.T. Wright, just so you know, we have his book, Case for the Psalms, at the Resource Center, if you'd like to get one to help you in your ongoing study of the Psalms. Uh, we also have a, a, um, a devotional book by Tim Keller that uh, goes throughout the year uh, in the Psalms, just short little devotional thoughts if you'd like those. 
But um, there are about 150 psalms. We've done five, so we only have 145 more to go. So we're well on our way. Uh, we're not going to do all of them, but we are going to do one, another one next week. So I hope you can come back and be with us. Okay? Why don't you stand with me? And, uh, you know, if you have questions about God, about Jesus, because you could say, uh, how can we be sure this God really does love us? Jesus proved it. He proved it. And in those times of, uh, uh, in those times of hardship, it's not just enough to know that God exists. We, have to know, we need to know that God, this God loves us, right? So if you have questions about that, some of our prayer team folks will be up at the front of the uh, auditorium here for you so you can come up and chat with them or talk to someone you know from Parkview. Let them share their story with you about how God has moved in their lives, all right? In the meantime, I hope you have a great, great weekend. Be safe. Let me pray for you, and then we're dismissed. Our Father, as we once again um, leave this building and kind of get swept up in the ever-rolling stream of time, wherever it carries us this week, I pray it would carry us closer to you. I pray that no matter what happens, that we trust you, we would find our hope in you. For you love us immutably forever. And Jesus has proven that. And so we put our faith in you this morning. May your hand of grace and comfort, hope and joy rest on the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.